0: Hi, I'm Chrysiki Ratsu and you are listening to KUB Voices. This podcast is released under Creative Commons license. You can find us at KUB Voices on Twitter, Spotify and iTunes. This month, we're addressing racism. If you missed the first episode outlining how racism works and how we must work to eliminate it, make sure to check it out. In this episode, we want to focus on the experiences of members of the Black Community at KQB. We are delighted to welcome a guest host for the episode, Dr. Yassin Branser, lecturer in Human Rights Law, co-director of the QUB Gender Network and co-chair of QUB's IRISE, the Black, Asian and Minority Ethnic and International Staff Network. Dr. Branser talks with Esther Andare and Olua Yomi Olaide Kolapo, members of the Committee of the Student-Led African-Caribbean Society.
1: everyone, and welcome to QUB Voices. My name is Dr. Yasin Brunger, and I am a lecturer in the School of Law. I also am co-chair of IRISE, which is the Black, Asian, and Minority Ethnic and International Staff Network here at QUB. I am so excited to be joined today by members of the squad, from the ACS, that is the African and Caribbean Society here at Queen's University Belfast. I'm excited because as a former student of Queen's, the ACS did not exist when I was here, but coming back as a staff member, my heart just melted when I saw the ACS and how active they were on on the university campus. Um, as part of our community here in Northern Ireland and ultimately the showcase of just Black excellence for everything that it is. Um, so I'm delighted to be joined by Esther and Yomi, but I'm going to hand over to them to let them introduce themselves, tell you a little bit about themselves and, um, and then we'll get a conversation starting. Uh, Esther, over to you.
2: Thank you. Thank you for that, Yasin. So I am Esther. I am a Master's in Law student um, and I've been in Queens for the past four years now. So I did a history undergrad here and then I am doing my Master's in Law, like I said earlier. So... um, A part of the ACS, I've been a part of the ACS in terms of actually being a member since 2017. So when I joined and it was just nice to kind of have a home base coming from London, where it's more like obviously predominantly more um, racially integrated or like, you know, more culturally diverse. It was great to have kind of like, like I said earlier, a home base. And now I am a part of the society. I'm a committee member and I help out and like, you know, do events. And it's just great to be a part of that. So I'm just going to hand it over to Yomi, our president, to take it off.
3: Thank you very much, Esther. And uh, thank you, Yasin, for having us on QB Voices. Um, my full legal is Oluwa Yomi Olaide Kolapo. But, you know, my, I go by Yomi popularly. Um, as Esther has already introduced me, I'm the president of the Queen's University Belfast African Caribbean Society. Uh, this is a position I've held for the past two years. <laughs> yeah, this is a position I've held for the past two years. Um, by way of education, I'm, I'm doing a master's in structural engineering with architecture. Um, I've also started my own platform called African Soaring in the Air. So I try my best to interview, you know, Africans who are excelling in Ireland, who are living in Ireland, and just a platform to showcase the positivity that exists in the African community in Ireland. Um, So yeah, I think that's just a little bit about myself. I don't want to toot my own horn too much, but yeah, (laughs) that's me.
1: (laughs) Um, Thank you so much, Yomi and Esther. And um, I think it would be really useful for um, listeners to um, understand what the ACS is and does and the values you stand for. So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about the society itself.
3: Well, yeah, um, I guess I'll start off. I'll start off with what the ACS is from my perspective. And I guess, you know, Esther can say what it is from her perspective as well. Um, So the ACS in general is a place where, you know, people can come and learn about the African culture in, you know, in the university. So, it's also a safe space for people who are looking for familiar faces as well. And for people who are not African or Caribbean to come and learn about the African culture. Um, I think that's pretty much what it is at its, you know, primary at its primary roots. Um, but like over the last couple of months, years, you know, we've developed into something more where we're now advocating for, um, you know, student rights, I guess, in relation to, in relating to race and stuff like that. So, you know, the university, you know, started off as, you know, kind of like a social gathering. The society started off as a social gathering for people. And now it's, it's expanding beyond that to become more vocal in how it's in its approach to holding the university accountable in certain areas. So yeah, that's what the African Caribbean society is.
2: Yeah, no, nicely said, Yomi. Exactly. Um, When I came, like I said, I knew the ACS as kind of just like a place where I can go and be with people that are the same as me and have like similar relations and I can just chat and chill. Um, I actually chose to get involved with the ACS this year just because of the political things that were going on. So the letter to the vice chancellor about their um, queens' reaction to the Black Lives Matter movement, things like that. And I thought that this is where I want to be. I want to be advocating for myself and my peers on a platform that. Is for us, like it's run by us. We choose the organize, we choose the events sorry, that we want to do, and we come together. We talk about what needs to be done because I think that there's this huge misperception around Queens that there aren't that many people or students from a diverse background, just because like I, we said it in our, one of our meetings, actually, in one of our events, that just because you don't see us on campus doesn't mean we're not here, doesn't mean that we should not be focused or doesn't mean that we shouldn't get as much like you know diversity or in t- attention as the other people. And that's what ACS is to me. is kind of highlighting that, hello, hi, we're here and we're here to stay. Exactly.
1: When was the ACS formed?
3: So this is probably... Uh... A negative reflection on myself. I do know that it was formed about seven, six or seven years ago, but I don't know the exact year. And um, but it was formed about five years before I came to the university, from what I I know. And um, so I came to university in 2018. So, you know, my rough estimation is the ACS was formed in 2013. Um, I asked uh, an alumni, you know, when it was formed, but I haven't got a response yet. <laughs> but yeah, I think it was formed um, circa 20 2013.
1: Okay. I, I ask that because I think it's an important date to be mindful of. I left, I graduated from the university in 2009. ACS is formed 2013. Esther, you said something really powerful there in terms of like the visibility that the ACS brings to students of African Caribbean descent. Um, and And what that means in terms of our community here at Queen's. Because let's get real, we are a minority in a university and also a minority in the society that we're based in, right, in Belfast, in Northern Ireland. So visibility and presence is really important. And I think the ACS is an important platform for all the reasons that you outline. But what are the challenges that you found in in building that greater visibility and presence in a society and institution that is predominantly white?
2: Let's talk about that. Great. So for me I feel like the challenges is like Being taken serious this is my own perception of it anyway from being a part of the ACS as a member and now as a like you know committee member as well so looking at the other countries like mainland England so I have a cousin who goes to Warwick so that's like Midlands Coventry big ACS over there and compared to here, it's completely different. The perception is different. So I was having a conversation with her, actually, about having people from a different race within the ACS because I was, like, within Northern Ireland, we when, when I was here, like, when I started, there was, like, a couple of um, people for that weren't Black or weren't from a Caribbean descent, and they were part of the ACS. And she was like, you'll never have that in Warwick. Never. Like... But then I was like, we have to have it like in order to have the members, in order to have the like actual, I don't want to say standing, but in order to actually be a society, we need to have the members. So we need to be accepting of other people. And she was just like, no, that's not what it is. And I think that is a difficulty kind of having to find the balance between being true to ourselves, but also having to do what we have to do to stay, not stay alive, but like, you know, to carry on going, get the members, be galvanising support. And we need to think about allyship. And that's what we kind of have to have. Whereas other ACSs don't, they have their own community to support themselves. I hope that makes sense. But yeah, yeah. That makes so much sense. Um, just that, you
1: know, viability of actually getting a student society running in Queen's. And how do you do that when the the constituents of that society might actually be small um, as compared to maybe what is required? So that's a really, really important reflection. Um, Yomi, what, what challenges do you think from your experience?
3: Um, so from my experience, I guess, like from initially coming to queens in 2018 and um, i kinda narrate my story a little bit so um it would have been a case where i came to queens and i was registration week and i'm walking around looking for different buildings and i'm like whoa like there's nobody that looks like me where's where is everyone like do you know what i mean because i was coming from dublin i did my first degree in dublin And I was in a place where Dublin is not where England, like mainland UK is, but like, it's more diverse, you know, it's very, very, very cosmopolitan. So I'm coming from a place where I'd see black people on a regular, but I came to a place I was like, okay, I am alone. I am the only one here. And I guess that's every, every other like African person's individual experience would be similar. But then I was shocked when I went to the first meet and greet and I was like, where is everyone hiding? You know, where is everyone hiding? How come there's not, like, many more o- other people, like, out here? Why can't I see other people? So I guess that was my first experience coming to, to Queen. So that was a difficult instance. Um, But for me, I felt like the African Caribbean society was doing well from what I saw, you know, from the little I saw. So the previous committees had done very well. You know, they've put together, they've started the society. They've created this um, ecosystem of people, you know, African people in, in Queens and as a society, I guess. However, I felt like there was more opportunities, that there was more places that, you know, we could develop as a society. And I felt like in terms of visibility, in terms of how we were viewed by people. So this is where, like, I know before they might have had like merchandise that they were using, but like, this is where the merchandise idea came from. This is where branded pens came from. This is where you know having a pop-up banner came from you know how do we make ourselves more visible how do we make ourselves more out there somewhat like a marketing strategy strategy so i guess that was where we were kind of lacking a little bit and you know by implementing these things i think you know people started to see that we were taking ourselves a bit more seriously i guess and they were trying to you know be part of what was going on you know because we we're bringing a change rebranding the society as well like letting people know that okay we're we're here we're different we're doing something different now this time so I guess yeah so yeah that was the difficulty like seeing people and how do we get the people to see us
2: if I can also jump on that actually Yomi is one thing that I actually wanted to add when you're saying that is I knew that of oh, the ACS kind of has made it onto society. If you think about 2019, the Black History Month, so Decolonizing curriculum, you had all the guest speakers in and stuff like that. Events were sold out. You had the sip and drink around Black History Month last October. I think personally to me, that's when I was like, wow, the ACS are here we've arrived because we were doing things in collaboration with like you know QBSU that's what you see main societies doing and it wasn't like one of those odd societies that pop up here and there it shows that we're here and we're here to stay and that for to me I felt like that was really good.
1: Yeah and uh, that that's so true Esther that energy around Black History Month and um, you know, I I was lucky enough to be around and involved in the kind of first Black History Month with the previous um, ACS president. And honestly, the mobilization of the ACS, um, the SU, it was just incredible. And I think that just went from strength to strength and. Uh, And the year that you're talking about was that just constellation of students and staff and music and art and, you know, politics and thinking about education. And it just grew. And as someone who, all confessing out here on these streets, was a member of the Warwick Committee ACS back in my uni days, I couldn't have dreamed of our ACS doing what you guys did um, with that Black History Month. And that's something that is a legacy, right? That's something that is so important in so many ways. I think for many staff, they maybe didn't know so much about the ACS. But with all the events around Black History Month, I saw lots of staff coming forward, coming to the events, learning, listening, listening. And it was amazing to see you all as leaders. But do you see yourselves as leaders, as pioneers in this space? Anything, Mr. President? What do you think, <laughs> Mr. President? Go Mr. for Mr. President.
3: Um, I think the simple answer is yes. Um, okay. I'm. I'm just going to call it what it is. You know, I'm not going to try and be fake humble and say no, I'm not. You know, yes, I, <laughs> I do. I do see myself a leader as a leader in that regard. Um, so simple answer, yes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Esther, how about yourself? Do you see the pioneering work that the ACS is doing?
2: The thing is that I think it's very different for me because I joined COVID times. So I think it's very hard for me because I think it's online and not as physical. I mean, I felt I can feel that what I'm within, if that makes sense. So I can feel that I'm within... A uh, move not even a movement I'm within something solidified and great and like i i'm so ex- super excited for next year hopefully like with things easing up and being able to actually meet the people within our community community and like get to like be with them and like do events for them and to uplift them but right now i feel like i'm just going with the flow if that makes sense like i'm i'm following the lead of mr president and mrs president vice president as well
3: so uh- I'll I'll say this. I think Esther's been a little bit humble because you know. So basically, Esther did not join the uh, ACS committee from the beginning, from the jump of this this academic session. Um, but we were we were only six committee members at first, uh, and then we realized that you know, six of us is going to be a bit too hard. It's going to be a bit overbearing. So we opened it up to have supporting roles. So we said supporting roles. So Esther came in as a supporting role, but she's really, really, you know, taking the ball by its horn. Like you can see, she's been going back and forth with you guys in emails, you know? So she's prepping herself for, for her leadership role next year. <laughs> no, nah, but she's really, she's been really, she's been doing very well, you know, in the committee, you know, so. Thank
2: you, Yomi. Thank <laughs> you. No, like it's because this is something that I want to do. I feel like, That I, well, in the first year, when I first came here, I kept on thinking, oh, QBACS is not like Warwick, it's not like all these like big universities. And I'm like, it's good that it isn't. Like, it took me a while, but I'm like, it's good that it isn't. Like, this is something that I can make what I want it to be. There's no point of looking down to Dublin being like, their ACS is doing this, our ACS isn't. You have to work not even with what you've got, you have to work with who you have, and you need to make the best of that. Not even best of that, you need to make it the best possible thing that you can. And I think that's what we're doing, and that's what I strive to do within ACS, and I hope I am doing that. So, yeah
1: yeah and that takes us really nicely to a to to a a tougher subject that all three of us know well, um, which is around how we do racial justice work within Queens and within Northern Ireland. so I want to talk about that A c s letter uh, that was written in the summer of last year. Could you tell our listeners who are not familiar um, what that letter was about and why the ACS felt compelled to write
3: it. Okay, so we all know what happened um, back in May. I think it was the 22nd of May, if I remember correctly, when George Floyd, you know, was murdered in America. And this spiked up a whole, like, a whole massive... It reinvigorated the movement of the Black Lives Matter... It reinvigorated the Black Lives Matter movement. And us as a society... Obviously as black people we were hurt it was a very very emotionally traumatizing like period for a lot of black people in this world you know even though it happened in America every black person around the world felt the effect so you know I, we heard some people trying to you know dismiss our our pain by saying the racism here is not as bad as the racism in America you cannot racism has more borders you know pain has no borders we are feeling the exact same pain and yeah so that's just a little bit bit of background so we as a society we it wasn't even on our radar we were we were dealing with you know emotional stress you know it was not on our radar to call out the university for anything at first but we were quite surprised on the second of june the tuesday the second of june to see on instagram that all of a sudden we're posting a black square and this is when we're like, wait, what? <laughs> like, like, what is this? When you, How-
1: when, when you say we, do you mean... Who, who do you mean by the we? Just so that
3: our listeners are clear. So, so black people, you know... Black no, people- sorry. Uh, I, I meant
1: the square. Who posted the square?
3: <laughs> the, the university. <laughs> so, the university posted a black square on their Instagram page. And, you know, it was it was there's some there's obviously someone handling the the university page, but it's at the same time it's a reflection of the university they're representing the university, so therefore we' we'll say the university posted the black square and um, you know we were shocked you know a member of um the committee just sent sent me the the post and be like they have not given any context what whatsoever they have not put out any anything whatsoever to say you know that they're in solidarity with the moment, but they posted a black square, which like for us felt like performative solidarity you know so we were like okay something has to be done and then a series of protests were you know held and ran we just felt like as a society due to the severity of COVID-19 at the time and because we were part of Queen's University Belfast you know there was a limit in what we could do if we if we could we would have protested you know officially but we we thought we had to think of something else that we could do that could trigger trigger response you know trigger something so um the then Vice President for Equality and Diversity reached out to me and said, "What can we do?" So we came to consensus that you know maybe an open letter to the Vice Chancellor and the Chancellor of the universities would be the best thing to catch everybody 's eyes because everybody's looking at screens now M- more people are at home, so everybody's looking at screens. So we, we, we sat down together. Well, she was in, in Belfast. I was in, back home in, in the Republic of Ireland. And we fleshed out what our, our major demands would, have be, would be. And the, the letter was so very well constructed. And I, and I really do not want to take credit for it or make the ACS take credit for it alone because we were really helped by the Vice President for Equality and, and Diversity, Hamzavani, who really helped us. So we fleshed out the, the key main de- demands, if I can remember it off the top of my head, was to to have culturally competent well-being services. There was also publishing, you know, the race at the, the, the BAME attainment gap to so publish those results and to also to decolonize the curriculum, to have specific routes on how the university was going to go about decolonizing not internalizing internationalizing or um um there's another word that they like to use, I can't remember. But diversifying. Diversifying, <laughs> but it was strictly that we wanted to decolonize the the curriculum. and um, so those are our key demands and we were surprised at how it was picked up. It was picked up by a lot of people, it gained so much traction. Um so yeah, that was like the background into like us, you know publishing or putting out this open letter to, to the world, I guess.
1: Yeah. Um, and Esther, when, when this letter went out and, you know, it gained so much traction, were you hopeful or fearful or both?
2: I, you no, know, not neither. I, I think I was pissed mm. at just uh, audacity first of all I felt like audacity was the word of queens to post a black square and also I was like I want to see what their response would be because I feel like at this point I had lost faith in the not queens as a university but queens as an institution and an organization I've lost I lost faith in them actually being able to respond because I was first of all I was like are we even going to get a response? because I saw the letter posted on QBACS's Instagram. And I was like, this is not going to get a response. Very cynical thought, but um, it did get a response. And when I saw the response, again, I was pissed again because I was like, this isn't a response that I wanted. It was felt filled with so much like empty promises, not even promises. It felt like kind of them not really apologizing or not know anything, nothing solid left. They didn't answer the questions that we asked, in my opinion. And I felt like they didn't, actually refer to the problem at hand they just it was kind of like the blanket you're you're angry and I'm sorry that you're angry type of thing that's how I felt it was and I was just like there there needs to be more done because yes I we can't say that we are a substantial or big percentage of the you know breakdown of like students but with like I said earlier we're still here These are people that they've been complaining because one of the letters actually said about like, you know, the racial abuse that people have got and has gone unnoticed. And, you know, queens have this thing of kind of labelling themselves as the best university for mental health. Like, how does that reflect when like a huge population are facing kind of like you know racial abuse of different levels like some people I was hearing some people getting it from their lectures in some parts. some people getting it from their own peers and like people that they they're meant to be living with like how are we meant to feel comfortable knowing that your response to that was posting a black square and when you were called up on it you said oh I'm sorry that you're upset you know so yeah pissed
1: yeah, I think one of the reasons the letter gained so much traction um, is, be- is because of that those testimonials those those stories that reality that all was not well behind the hallowed doors of the institution and that whether it was microaggressions or overt racial slurs from either staff students um, and 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 creating this environment for. Um, the members of the ACS. This was not good enough on the part of the institution, and that if they didn't know, now they know. As Biggie says, if when you when you what's the line? When you don't know, now you know. Something now you know. Like that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and I and I think and I think that's what you did, and and with that letter, that's what that that's what happened. So one could not deny that racism. Existed within Queens. The question then is, what would you like to see the institution do? Uh, and and I open that out to both, you know, higher level institution, but also departments, schools, um, different uh, lecturers, um, the SU. What what do you think could be done better? And I know. You don't have to come up with all the solutions. In fact, it's not our job to come up with solutions as, 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 uh, uh, as black people to a racist system. But I think it's useful for, for people who are listening to have an idea of what are the types of things, what are the types of changes you'd like to see?
2: So one thing that I would like to see personally is I would like to see a consistent effort. I find that, yes, you can say for for example, Black History Month. I find that's when um, personally when Queens and like, you know, a little bit of Eshi will come. We'll do our decolonizing talk or like event and then that's it. So for what about the rest of the months, the other 11 months of the year? The Queen's QBACS basically are by ourselves. We're kind of like doing what we're doing consistently. And then come October, you're like, oh, let's have a talk here. Let's have a talk there. We need to see consistent effort throughout the year. We're not just here for October we're here every single year so if you want to actually have us on like several discussions several talks several panels over the year have us let's have discussions consistently because we need people to know that we don't just crop up when someone is shot in America or in fact down south we need people to know that we are here and we want to have conversations we want to be integrated Within like just normal society, not normal society, sorry, normal like university society, normal SU happenings and what's going on, we need to have a space for us to be like, you're welcome here.
3: yeah, for me, I guess um yeah I, I very much agree with them, um, esther, um, but for me I, I'm thinking you know from from a specific point of view i can't I can't experience racism now and walking into the wellbeing services. And see someone that can confidently want to share my experience with, because simply put they just they just won't get it, they just won't get it they you know you might you might come across and an as if, as though you are taking it out of context or over overreacting, but you know I can't sit down in the well being service and and report you know racism to someone and 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 hope that they will get it so i i'm I'm looking to see if they would if the university would have more culturally competent well-being ser- services, someone that looks like me, you know, let's, let's, let's forget about me. Let's look at, you know, we have many Asian students. Can an Asian student walk into the, into the well-being services now and confidently, you know, speak about his negative experience to a white person? You know, that's something he can't. It, it's, 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 not, it's not the case at the moment. So I'm looking to see if that can change. You know, yes, we, we put out all these mental health stuff and all this well-being stuff, um, but it's, it's deeper than that. It's, there's no generic way to deal with mental health. There's no one-size-fits-all. So why not provide what can be suited to the demographic that exists in Queens? You know, so that's that's one thing I would, I would love to see um, in Queens University. And yes, definitely a more consistent effort, effort with, would be... Would be great, <laughs> as as Esther has mentioned, a more consistent effort, so we don't just crop up around October, or um, I don't want to be I don't want the, the next president to just be met messaged at the beginning of October or towards the end of September and say, um, what are your plans for Black History Month? I can offer any help, you know. I'd, i that's that's, too, that's that's too rushed, you know. It's it's too rushed for us, you know. I don't I don't only really exist in September and October and then you leave me alone.
2: <laughs> On top of that, I also think that there needs to be unconscious bias training, personally, um, within lecturers and even students as well, if we can, because I think people are underestimating the fact that for some of these students that come from predominantly white towns, this is probably our first time, like, you know, encountering someone from a different race, a different culture th- from them. So there'll be things that stem from just their own my, like mentality their own thinking that they think it's like oh it's not racist i'm just asking a question like you know i think one we're talking on I me mean, you said that some people just like move to the other side of the road or something when they like you know see black people for example like these need these things need to be brought up and like explained like you can't be saying things and doing things because that's what you think it's normal and you think it's not racist because everyone does it there needs to be more awareness on that
3: and do you know, talking on that, do you know what is surprising here? Yeah? That we had, uh, back in, in May, May last year, June last year, when we were doing all of this work, it was surprising to, that a student reported to us and she told us exactly what the, the university said. The university, she reported racism. And to my surprise, to my shock, the university said, these students are from rural backgrounds and any exposure to punitive action would remove their learning experience. So basically they were saying in hindsight was that deal with it, you know, um, they will learn, just leave them alone. They will learn. That's what they were saying. They were, they were accommodating this and we can't accommodate this. So definitely like there needs to be um, unconscious, unconscious bias training. Definitely. I do agree with that.
1: Yeah. And I think, you know, there is, um, uh, training for staff, um, uh, available and I think it's uh, in fact compulsory for staff. I'm not. I'm not sure what the landscape is like for students. Uh, whether they have to do something uh, as a compulsory unconscious bias training, but we also are aware that that's not enough, right? We also are aware that. When you called for decolonizing the curriculum, it's to shift the idea away from our institution reflecting a marginalized uh, approach to education, right? So this way where we're we're marginalizing um, knowledge, understandings in a world that is not shaped by white intelligentsia right? That there are black scientists, there are scientists of African descent, that there are writers beyond Toni Morrison and Maya Angelou, but writers from Somalia and Nigeria and Ghana. How have you found your curriculum and your members of the ACS? How how do you find your curriculum reflecting um, the knowledges within people of African and Caribbean descent?
3: I guess I'll go first and um, I, I think Esther will have a lot more to speak about than I would um, because I am studying something that there's not that much room for culture I guess in in regards to you know you're given code of practice and you have to work according to code of practice you know so I work I'll be working as a structural engineer in the future Um someone did touch on you know looking at who were the earliest engineers and you know like you know, where did this stem from, like the, the the mud houses, you know, in Africa back in the, time, back in the days and, and stuff like that, to look into how you can fit that into my kind of engineering. Um, but I can't really, you know, from my degree, from my point of view, I can't really say, you know, that that has so much of an like overriding effect, if that makes sense. Uh, But I'll hand over to Esther, who I believe will have a lot to say.
2: (laughs) So, yeah, I I mean, I do. I did history for my undergrad at Queen's. And um, I think I felt it was very samey. Coming from, like, doing history in England, just learning about, you know, the Tudors... Soviet Union, World War II, it's very white. Um, I think I had one module where I learned about, you know, the Brixton riots and just generally Black people within Britain, but only in one module, in the wider mod- module, sorry, it was about Thatcher, Margaret Thatcher in Britain. So I had one week on learning about Black Britons and then had another module where I actually learned about India, and Africa, just as a general. So out of my, I think I had, what did 12 modules within like my three years, I had two that weren't predominantly white. And I, I actually actively went out my way to select those two modules. So those were the two ones that were actually offered that weren't about, you know, a white point of view of history. And I find that, which is what is different from other universities that my friends went to and my like family went to and did history, is that there's this heavy focus on Irish history at uh, Queen's. And obviously, I th- understand that that's because they want to learn their own history, which is very important and very delicate. And like I understand the troubles have such a connotation and there's this need to learn about it and educate yourself about it. But from studying and working here, I find that because of this the narrative of you know the troubles there isn't enough space to talk about other problems that are going on like the growing migration community within Northern Ireland the growing need of need of diversity and like inclusion because everyone's like focused on orange and green and the I I know it sounds very, very, I don't want to say narrow minded or very, very high, mighty coming from like, you know, someone who obviously hasn't been affected by the Troubles or someone who hasn't experienced it. But I don't want to say that there's more to the Troubles, but there are more communities. There are more communities in Northern Ireland that need to be highlighted. Their stories, their history needs to be studied and educated and I think that the history degree shouldn't be focused predominantly on Irish history and the troubles. There needs to be diversity. There needs to be, again, like you said, decolonization as a whole. And um, for the law degree that I started, I started it this September. I don't know if I can say if there's much. I don't know. I feel like I personally have this view of what it should be in terms of decolonization, like learning about the international aspects of like crime and Um, like you know the international aspects of genocide around the world but because I am doing a conversion course I only had learned the basics of law so I can't really I can't argue that much for what it's worth so yeah.
1: No I mean as as a member of the law school I think we have so much to do in terms of thinking about how we decolonize our curriculum. And it's a conversation that is happening across law schools and in different ones. Bristol Law School, for example, has a module on race and law. Um, and and it is possible, but it is getting it on the imagination of those who are the majority, because we imagine different all the time, we being people of African and Caribbean descent. We imagine a world different for ourselves every day in spaces where we may not see ourselves. To round off, I wanted to share moments of joy and motivation. So I asked the two of you before the um, conversation started to um, think about uh, a piece of music or poetry or literature, something that motivates you and gives you joy. Because I think as Black people, we're often renegated to this idea of talking about race, talking about the heavy stuff, talking about trauma, talking about how to fix institutions. But we have so much joy. The ACS, and I'm sure with your activities, brings so much joy to the students. Um, So I wanted you to share with our listeners um, your own individual choices for what gives you joy. So um esther i will i will go over to you first
2: so my choice was india ari's you know i am not my hair um yeah you, you know it yes. do you know the song yes. yeah, i mean you don't do you,
3: <laughs> no. No, you're like, no i don't know
2: it no no um something to listen to straight after you really do. It's a banger, first of all. And it's just like an anthem. I started listening to it when I was like 13. I came about it like absolutely randomly. And every time I listen to it, I sing it and it just gave me empowerment. Do you know what? Like I'm not my hair. and I feel like hair is such an important conversation for black women because it is stigmatized it is everything every single word that you can think about it our hair has been basically so I absolutely love that song and it's just empowering being like you can be whatever you want to be who cares about your hair so yeah that's mine
1: I love it I love it and particularly here in Northern Ireland um I loved the ACS exhibition they did Um, for the first Black History Month, which was Don't Touch My Hair. Exactly that. How even our hair is subject to hands that are not ours when we're just minding our own business. Thank you so much, Esther, for that. And Indiare is a legend. Yomi, what was your choice?
3: My choice, the song that comes to mind, is Burner Boy. I'm a big fan. Burner Boy, African Giant. I had to plug my guy, okay? He doesn't know me. I'm saying my guy like he's my friend. <laughs> <laughs> it's um, all
1: right. He's a
2: friend of mine. <laughs> <my> <laughs> no.
3: may- maybe he will be my guy, you know? But yeah, um, African giant, you know? He just starts off with, you know, tell them, Africa, we are tired. You know, here comes the African giant. You know, letting them know that... And it came in 2019. It came, came at a beautiful time. So, you know, Africa is rising. Like, people who are sensitive right now would see that Africa is rising. You know, like different from what the past different from the past there's like something happening like that's going to take the whole world by storm um so yeah that's that's one song that gives me like yeah like you know when you hear that song you just feel like yeah africa here comes the african giant you know we're here we're coming (laughs) so i love it i love it
1: um and for the listeners my choice because i did share this with esther and yomi was lauren hill that thing. Um, As soon as you hear those just first chords going, you can't help but get up and just feel the music and just feel pure joy. Um, But the lyrics just tell us a story of Black men and women not being defined by what society expects us to do. And I love it and would encourage you. So there you go. You've got three tracks to listen to everybody after this podcast. We hope you enjoy them. Um, my thanks to Esther and Yomi for this um, amazing conversation and for just inspiring me and I hope the listeners, but um, keep up the fantastic work and QUB. I hope those that need to are listening. Um, A special thanks also to Kira and Chrissy of QUB Voices for um, helping us out to get all the logistics of this session uh, sorted. Um, Take care, everyone, and
0: stay safe. Thank you.
3: Bye. Thank you. Bye.
0: Take care, everyone. Racial discrimination happens everywhere, and it is up to each of us to challenge discrimination at micro and macro levels. The stories outlined by Esther and Yomi make it clear that racism is alive in Northern Ireland and closer to home than we might think. Here, at KQB Voices, we try to amplify the voices of our postgraduate community, and we wanted to know what queens are doing to combat racial discrimination and inequality. They provided us with the following statement. In April 2020, the University Senate approved a new Equality, Diversity and Inclusion policy, restating our commitment to the promotion of equality of opportunity and to creating and sustaining an environment that not only values equality and inclusion, but also celebrates the diversity of its staff and student body, which so enriches our society. This policy specifically outlines the provision of equality of opportunity to and fair treatment of all, including race equality, and makes clear the university's zero-tolerance approach to discrimination or bullying and or harassment against any other person. The university is currently establishing a racial equity working group to lead an institutional program of which one of the streams will be an award application to the Race Equality Charter. The university has signed up to the Race Equality Charter, which aims to improve the representation, progression, and success of Black, Asian, and minority ethnic staff and students. Thank you for listening. We hope that the stories told today will encourage you to join the fight to eliminate racial discrimination. We'll be back in two weeks with our next Researcher Spotlight episode with Laura Gillespie, PhD student at School of History, Anthropology, Philosophy and Politics at QUB. In the meantime, feel free to get in touch with us on Twitter at QUB Voices and let us know what you think.